0: Which is a perfect way to start off a discussion of European security, Russia's role in it, and perhaps also America's role in it, with um, really an all-star panel. Uh, I'm extremely uh, thrilled to have, uh, I think think a diversity of views uh, will be represented, as well as a diversity of uh, geographic perspectives. I'm going to go down the line here in introducing our panelists, uh, so... To my far left uh, is Ivan Simafeev, who is Director of Programs at the Russian International Affairs Council. Um, To his right is Andrei Kartunov, uh, Director General of the Russian International Affairs Council. And um, both both, uh, Ivan and Andrei are very prominent uh, Russian uh, thought leaders on uh, topics relating to uh, Russian national security, the transatlantic relationship, uh, and uh, really, we couldn't ask for better representation from the Russian Federation. Uh, next to me on my left is Konstantin solzhenko who's the uh, inaugural Robert Bosch Sr. Fellow in the Center for the United States and Europe at uh, Brookings, just down the street. And again, I think if you're looking for European perspectives uh, and uh, just strong analytical capacity That's and strong views strong news also, Uh, but also years of following these issues and uh, we couldn't ask for uh, a better panelist. Uh, To my right uh, is uh, William Hill, who is Global Fellow at the Wilson Center, Professor of National Security Strategy Strategy at National Defense University, and importantly, an author of a new book called No Place for Russia, European Security Institutions Since 1989, which just came out this summer. Would you like to fold it up? Sure. Since have a, a copy I here? was going to
1: put it up later, <laughs> there but you I go. you know. go.
0: <laughs> but uh, I think very topical uh, to the issues we're going to discuss. And then uh, next to Bill is Michael Kaufman, who is a senior research scientist with the Russia Studies Program at CNA and a Canada Institute Fellow at the Wilson Center, who has worked a great deal on the uh, nuts and bolts, guns and bomb side of, uh, of all of these issues. So a great panel. Um, and I think what we want to do is have a conversation that uh, first we'll have without the audience. And then we'll bring the audience in to also join in. Um, so because Bill has this new book out on uh, Russia and the European security order, um, I thought I would ask him to kind of kick us off um, by talking about how the US and NATO have looked at Russia's role in Europe over the last 25 years.
1: Okay. Over to you. Uh, thank you very much, Olivia. Yeah, no, I, I, I arrived at this book, which really traces European security, and the major institutions, NATO, the EU, and the OSCE, since the end of the Cold War, which I put roughly 1989 to 1991. Uh, but I, I got to this and to the, the title, No Place for Russia, which sort of gives away the thesis, uh, by asking you know How we got, or answer, answering the question, how we got from the optimism of 1989, 1991, you have the Berlin Wall opening, uh, you have an end to the military confrontation in Europe, and the emergence of a reforming Russia uh, from uh, what, you know, when, once the Soviet Union had collapsed, And today, you have a redivided Europe with a larger Western alliance opposed to a resentful Russia. Once again, this Russia is considered a major threat by many major Western nations. Uh, Western policy, uh, that is of US, NATO, and the EU from from 1990-91 until 2014, was basically to try to integrate Russia into European and global institutions. Uh, Russia was included in some, like the Council of Europe, the G8, uh, the WTO, eventually, that took most of that period. Uh, But it was left out of others. Uh, During the 1990s, Russia favored development of the OSCE as the primary pan-European security institution with a European Security Council uh, of the major powers in Europe. Very much a UN model. Moscow proposed this several times. western countries the u.s. and like-minded allies developed uh... and enlarged instead nato and the eu not necessarily to counter russia uh... but to respond to other problems uh... as both to transform to assist in the transformation um, of, or or the transition in europe central europe and eastern europe to uh... uh democratic institutions, uh, pluralistic, open political systems, market economies to stabilize the area, and NATO in particular also to respond to the wars that broke out in Europe, the instability within countries. Uh, Major threats are, are ethnic nationalism, separatism, and violence within countries rather than between nations. Uh, the US, uh, as opposed to the Russian idea, push, pushed a model of overlapping cooperative security institutions with divisions of tasks and responsibilities. So NATO does some things, EU does some things, OSCE does some things, they may overlap, they cooperate, uh, but you have the State Department had this diagram that they did at the time of concentric circles of all the institutions with members inside all overlapping and, and supposedly everybody was going to work harmoniously. Uh, importantly, the US saw and sees NATO as the primary provider of hard security. Uh, the EU assumed a role uh, of the key norm-setter for you know, political, economic, uh, and social standards, and OSCE took over whatever was left. It was largely conflict resolution in Central Europe and the East, election monitoring, uh, but an eclectic mix um, and without n- never really, in my estimation, a clear definition of what it's for. Uh, There was a major substantive disagreement between Russia on the one hand, I would argue, and the US and like-minded Western nations from the very beginning. And this is the status of the countries in the so-called near abroad, former parts of the Soviet Union. Uh, The US from the very beginning uh, saw and claimed and, and tried to push a policy that these countries were fully sovereign, and fully independent, while Moscow saw itself as having a, a special status and role uh, because of historical, social, cultural connections with these countries. Uh, best epitomized, at least to some, by Dmitry Medvedev's statement that this was a sphere of privileged in- interest in an interview he gave in August of 2008. Uh, This disagreement mattered a lot more in the 2000s than it did in the 1990s, when there was considerably more cooperation between East and West. Uh, But institutionally, as opposed to substantive disagreements, Russia and the West start to separate as the Western powers make key decisions within the EU and NATO, decisions in which Russia (laughs) has a voice but not a veto, which to me, is that's always been a contradiction. I mean, if you don't have a veto, you don't really, in the end, have a voice, uh, or you can complain, but nobody listens to your voice. Uh, The 1999 war against Serbia, the 2008 recognition of Kosovo are are prime examples where the UN was simply bypassed, Um, and the the, uh, NATO and the EU, um, yeah, took his international uh, institutions' decisions unilaterally. Russian complaints about this growing isolation grew during the 2000s. Uh, for, you heard from Moscow complaints of Western unilateralism and double standards, uh, which were met by complaints going the other way from the West toward Moscow uh, about a retreat from an open society, a retreat from democratic uh, standards or democratic backsliding. <laughs> Uh, the security and political order in Europe remained uh, to my, in my estimation cooperative throughout the 2000s in, into the early part of this decade. although there were increasing problems there, there was still considerable cooperation. the institution cooperative institutions um, and programs remained. Uh, but this order was increasingly beset by tension and continued to fray until I, can, I maintain that the post-Cold War, what I call the post-Cold War security order, uh, coming out of, first, out of the first Bush administration, ends in Europe with a crisis in Ukraine, Russia's annexation of Crimea and war in Donbass. And it has started to fray or fall apart in other places. Uh, but the East-West Comity, the, the, the Western push to integrate Russia has ended, and it is now... Uh, Again, a divided continent, uh, a divided security order, uh, (coughs) characterized by suspicion um, and unfriendliness, if not hostility. We're now in the process, I believe, in fashioning a new order, but we don't yet know what that will be. uh, And we don't yet know what any of those three major institutions that I mentioned will be. So that's what we're going to determine today, I guess.
0: Okay, well, I hope so. Uh, I think that that's a bit of a tall order. Um, But uh, Andre, do do you agree with Bill's historical assessment of the evolution of uh, European security over the last quarter century?
2: Well, let me say that I generally agree with this narrative, though probably I would put slightly different uh, accents on uh, particular junctures and turning points. Uh, But uh, what I'd like to do is not uh, to comment on uh, what has already been said but rather to complement uh, this presentation uh, addressing uh, some of uh, more recent developments uh, in europe and uh, thinking about the future uh, especially because we're approaching uh, said anniversary five years since the beginning of the ukrainian crisis and uh, having uh, this uh, recent past in mind and thinking about the future uh, I uh, have problems with the title of our panel. Actually, I have two problems. Uh, the first is uh, related uh, to the word evolving, and the second uh, is related to the word order. Uh, <laughs> know, I think that nothing is evolving.
0: Devolving?
2: Uh, well, maybe devolving to some extent, but I see spectacular little dynamics in the situation. Okay. Let me tell you that if we Had met here four years ago uh, in fall of 2014, and someone would have told me that we would reconvene in fall of uh, 2018 and we would discuss essentially the same set of issues. I, I wouldn't have believed that. I would have thought you are nuts that you know you, the crisis has to be resolved. You know, even the, sec- the first World War, we will have another anniversary quite soon, lasted for only four years. Uh, so what we see right now uh, is a remarkable resilience of the situation. Indeed, the Minsk agreements are not implemented, but we don't see an escalation in Ukraine. Uh, sanctions are still there. Uh, But the Russian economy demonstrated certain resilience. Uh, NATO deployed uh, its uh, four battalions, and uh, Russia reciprocated in kind. uh, But we don't have a real arms race in the center of Europe. So the question is why? Why we cannot get to some solution of the crisis? And uh, I hate to sound cynical, but I have two explanations for that, why nothing is evolving. The first explanation is uh, both sides basically accept the current situation as affordable. It's not perfect, it's not ideal, but they can live with the current situation. Uh, And uh, moreover, there are influential groups, I think, uh, on both sides uh, that benefit from this situation, that are able to meet their institutional objectives, that are able to somehow enhance their positions within the power structures, and who are used to that. Some of the dormant institutions uh, are back to life, and I think some people, you know, I hate, again, to be cynical, you know, enjoy the current conflict. And the second explanation which I have is that uh, both sides, believe that uh, time is playing on their side. Uh, In Russia, many think that sooner or later, but the integrity of the uh, Western world will erode, and uh, maybe something will happen, and uh, Europeans uh, will gradually, or not gradually leave sanctions, and uh, transatlantic relations are in uh, such a poor state that definitely the attention will be distracted from Russia to something more central, and uh, basically you know we can sit on our hands waiting for changes in the west the west is a moving target and uh, today is one of very rare historical situations when probably the future of russia is more predictable than the future of the european union and even the future of the united states i would venture to say on the u.s side and on the western side of course the perception is that you know putin will run out of steam and uh, the growing pressure uh, will uh, definitely affect uh, his ratings, and uh, the appetite uh, for changes in the Russian foreign policy, arguably in the domestic politics as well, will increase. So we have a stalemate, and I think uh, right now, the jury is still in session. It is very hard to to, to tell, you know, which uh, resilience turns out to be stronger, uh, and uh, I think that explains why. There is nothing in an the world. And second, uh, order. You know, when we are talking about order, order means that there are certain rules. You know, implicit or explicit, uh, codified uh, or not codified. Uh, but uh, there are certain rules of the game that uh, both sides uh, abide by. And I think that if we compare the current situation with the Cold War. Uh, we should uh, keep in mind that the Cold War was a long historical period, and uh, we are now in the situation of early 1950s, when uh, red lines were not clear, when the rules of the game were not defined, when the infrastructure of uh, U.S.-Soviet arms control didn't exist, uh, and basically it was not order. It was not the order of the mature Cold War system of 1970s or 1980s so looking to the future and i understand that i'm running off my time but uh, let me take just two minutes more uh, look into the future uh, i think uh, that uh, if we're lucky uh, we should try to compress you know four decades of the cold war into a shorter time period but we should go through this path once again uh, and uh, work uh, on the rules of engagement trying to bring down risks, trying to bring down costs, and trying to gradually uh, move to some kind of peaceful consequences. It's not a very appealing uh, future. I am personally not very inspired uh, by this future, Uh, but I think that uh, if nothing dramatic happens on either side, uh, it is uh, likely to be the most plausible option. However, having said that, we should also keep in mind that the twenty first century is different from the twentieth century. That's why there can be no repetition of the Cold War. Uh, there is growing role of uh, non state actors, uh, there is growing pressure of global problems, uh, there is no hierarchy uh, of uh, former political and military alliances. Uh, uh, borders are getting porous. Uh, people travel in and out. Uh, So I think that uh, when we are uh, considering the the new order, uh, it's not good enough to say that uh, we should uh, dig into the experience of the Cold War. I think that there should be a second layer of the relationship. That's why, you know, I call my favorite model of the relationship a hybrid relationship. The Cold War at one level, Uh, but uh, joint approach to common problems on the other level. Uh, We can start with relative non-toxic issues like soft security matters. We can definitely explore opportunities with OEC and other uh, pan-European institutions. We can also take a sub regional approach and we can gradually move furniture from the first floor to the second floor. And if we do that, I think in the end of the day we can get back to some kind uh, of greater Europe or greater Euro-Atlantic community with indivisible security. It will not happen soon. I think it will take a lot of time, a lot of effort, but I don't think that uh, this option is closed forever. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Ivan, uh, do you agree, do you see this as a new Cold War that we need to compress? I mean, I'm struck by the juxtaposition of, on the one hand, historical examples, right? We managed to get through an incredibly bloody world war in just a few years. We can't get through a, luckily, far less bloody Ukraine crisis in a longer period of time. Uh, If we're on the brink of a new Cold War, we should try to get through it faster. But at a place where who's up and who's down and what institutions function, which ones don't, do seem to be in flux. Do you, do you share Andre's view that this is the, that the way forward through it is by these same actors—Russia, the United States, European Union, perhaps key countries—rearranging uh, furniture between different floors?
3: Well, uh, it's a good question, and uh, I think uh, you, you mentioned uh, key variables. One of the key variables: great powers. So, what are the players uh, sitting? Uh, on this chessboard moving uh, pieces. And uh, I think that um, um, approaching the European order, we should uh, think about it in a more broader context uh, and uh, see how a more more global constellation, more global configuration uh, works. And here uh, we can identify at least Uh, three or four scenarios which would affect uh, the European affairs. Uh, The first scenario is uh, the uh, revival of liberal uh, world order there are lots of speculation about the crisis of liberal world order uh, and uh, well we know all of this uh, narrative so one of the scenarios is that liberal world order is not doomed that being a a complex uh, system it adapts to the current crisis, and it becomes, it, uh, it survives and becomes more uh, vital. So, in these uh, conditions, uh, there are less opportunities for Russia uh, for diplomatic maneuver. So, it will be, uh, so the, the depression Russia probably will be more consolidated, uh, the international environment more favorable for, let's say, justification of uh, the. Uh, Current normative positions Uh, So uh, it's uh, uh, For uh, This scenario provides uh, Let's say more opportunities For uh, let's say uh, Getting back to what we had In the late uh, 1980s Uh, But there is another scenario When uh, we have uh, The reality of growing Competition between US (laughs) and China Uh, And so if you look At the uh, US documents, doctrinal documents, we will see Russia, China, Iran, uh, North Korea. So, so Russia and China are formally taken as equal things. And again, formally, this means that uh, Russia and China are forced to be closer to each other. Uh, I, I'm quite skeptical about the prospects of uh, military alliance between the, the two countries. This is a quite a, a, quite a Unprobable um, um, uh, Perspective in current conditions But still uh, The second scenario is a new bipolarity With China and Russia on the one hand With the United States and other allies on the other So in this case uh, We will have of course uh, in, in Russian case More uh, strong positions uh, Reliance on China And Russia as a responsible player to contain United States in, uh, in Europe, while China responsible for, for Asia. Uh, this is, of course, a, a much less favorable scenario for the United States, uh, obviously. So U.S. may find itself in the shoes of uh, Mr. Brezhnev in the uh, 1970s, who had to contain both uh, uh, Washington and Beijing at the same time. Uh, the third scenario, I mean, this global constellation, Uh, is sort of a new uh, multipolarity. Mr. Primakov's uh, dream, uh, well let's say concept come true. When we have uh, high strategic autonomy (coughs) of European Union, when we have of course inevitable strategic autonomy of China, India and others, and if uh, Mr. Trump's approach to foreign policy is not just a fluctuation but a stable trend which would be continued after the change of, inevitable change of, uh, of power in, uh, in Washington, then, of course, we have, uh, let's say, much more uncertainty. But at the same time, it's a good scenario for Russia because uh, this will lead to a less consolidated pressure in terms of sanctions, even if they are it's, Well, theory says that uh, sanctions are successful when they are consolidated. When they are not, even the U.S. being a powerful economic player can hardly force such countries as Russia and even Iran to uh, change uh, its uh, political course. So uh, th- this is quite a good, uh, good scenario for, uh, for Russia. Uh, as for, last but not least, as for you know, some, some concrete uh, action, what, what can be done in, uh, in current uh, conditions, well of course uh, Ukrainian crisis is one of the stumbling blocks. though now we have uh, much harder situation in comparison with what we had two years ago two years ago we had just ukraine as a central issue now we have have a list of problems uh at least with the united states interference uh uh, uh middle east well etc the, the the list is is quite long uh, so uh, the question is, and, and uh, what is critical for our session today is the interpretation of uh, the phenomenon of Ukrainian crisis. The Western uh, approach rather implies that uh, it triggered the change of the uh, security order in Europe. So it was, let's say, the key reason uh, of changes to the worse. Russian interpretation is uh, is different. It implies that it is a result of the conditions which uh, have been, been accumulated uh, since at least late 1990s, since you, uh, the, the uh, war in Yugoslavia in 1999. Uh, so we, uh, and uh, we have uh, two different approaches, uh, how to, uh, let's say, uh, t- treat the uh, crisis of European order. The Western approach is that <coughs> Russia should do this, this, and that. And we know all of these requirements And Russian approach is uh, That as far as it is a result Of the uh, the Crisis of the European order We should change order and then go to uh, Let's say uh, uh, Ukrainian crisis A holistic approach uh, unfortunately, there there is few appetite uh, here and in Brussels uh, and in European capitals to do this. So we are more or less uh, doomed to be in this uh, stalemate uh, position. Uh, but I, I I think that stalemate is the best scenario we can uh, we can hope for in current conditions. We're uh, stalemate in in terms of uh, let's say uh, in terms of. Uh, uh, military balance uh, stalemate uh, means that we have uh, more or less stable, uh, stable deterrence, stable, stable, stable mutual containment. When we have these battalions in uh, in uh, Eastern Europe and some changes in Russia, when we when we have uh, an arms race, but it is more or less predictable, and we are more or less clear for each other. But this can be different. We can have unstable deterrence when. Let's say we commit things which are unpredictable, which uh, are misinterpreted uh, from both sides. Uh, and when the risk of miscalculation, misinterpretation is, uh, is much higher. And uh, of course, uh, another scenario which comes from this unstable containment or unstable deterrence is conflict. Uh, it's, it's hard to imagine for people of Cold War generation that conflict is possible because that time well, the, the, the consequences uh, would, would, would have been disastrous. But now we have different, uh, d- 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 different uh, military environment, different political environment. Uh, we, we have different generations in power with different uh, psychology and different views. So again, this is, this is another, um, uh, another reality. And last but not least, I'm speaking too, 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 too much, uh, is there a chance for, let's say, getting out from all of this, uh, all of this situation? It is. Uh, po- policy, politics is a lot of, of opportunity, a lot of possibility. Uh, but uh, uh, to, to get out from it, uh, I think stable deterrence is a necessary prerequisite. So we should maintain this st- stalemate as a, as a value now. Which, which which may sound quite paradoxical but you know uh, I think that uh, the preservation of status quo at least for some time to have a chance for let's say uh, additional maneuver is critical now
0: so i mean what i'm struck by listening to everybody so far is we talk about change but what we're describing is not actually all that much change we see you know we see stalemate we see stalemate between the same parties that were relevant uh, for the last 25 years. Constance, do you you agree, do you see this as a question of um, pretty much the same people being at the table making these decisions? And how do you see Russia's role as it has evolved over the last 25 years and how it might evolve into the future? Thank you.
4: Anyway, thank you for inviting me here. This has been really interesting because I think I occupy a completely different position. and in which Russia is perhaps a little less relevant mm-hmm. uh, than some other major factors of change, and as for stalemate, we should be so lucky. As for equilibrium, we should be so lucky.
5: Um,
4: <laughs> what do I mean by that? Um, and that's not to say that Russia and what happens in Russia and what Russia does plays no role <laughs> in, in the scenarios that I envisage. Um, but, let me perhaps raise uh, start with the transatlantic relationship between America and Europe um, about which which is my main area right. of work and about which i 've been been writing. Um, I, I wrote an essay in in February, which I called "Normal is over," and where I said that one of the the it seemed to me that the prime characteristic of this new dispensation of great power competition and of of us all realizing that globalization rather than creating peace harmony among all and a global middle class is in fact creating severe frictions with uh, concomitant risk of accidental unintentional escalation in ways that are deeply destabilizing, which is why I also think that the use of the term Cold War 2.0 or anything like that is deeply misleading Mm. and unhelpful and I wish we would just stop doing that. the, within this great power context and frictions of a globalization strategic framing, um, this new administration appears to have, and this is what I wrote in this essay in February, um, a sort of triple war narrative with regards to Europe and particularly the EU and Germany, and uh, it's a culture war, trade war, and war war narrative. Um, and at the time that I published this piece, um, this seemed to be mostly rhetoric. Um, The uh, the so-called adults in the room were working very hard to keep NATO afloat and to generally keep the relationship one um, that was sane and stable. Um, Since then, of course, we've had the events of the summer from the G7 summit to the Helsinki summit. We still don't know what was discussed there. And it seems to me that at this point, uh, what was set in motion over the summer is still in motion and we can say that three of my two narratives are now actually happening. We are in the middle of a trade war with Europe, and we are in the middle of a culture war with Europe. Um, The trade war consists of um, sanctions applied uh, very liberally. Uh, I would say the Russia sanctions, because we are talking about Russia here. I have great sympathy with those. I would absolutely, on, on the basis of the Skripal case, apply harder sanctions. But I think the thing we also need to see is that these sanctions have an important domestic role as a way of containing the president and it's somewhat and and his attitude to Russia and his rhetoric about Russia, and they by containing him and containing his actions and words, um, they risk of entering a an as it were an escalatory logic. Mm-hmm. And that same escalatory logic by leading to an, a unilateral ratcheting up of Russia sanctions has the unfortunate, at least from a European point of view, effect of undercutting the validity of the European sanctions <laughs> at a time when there are exactly two policies that are trans-European, the JCPOA, we know what happened to that, and the Russia sanctions. That is, from a, even a, a point of view of, of Europeans who entirely agree with the need for sharper sanctions, a problem. Then there are, of course, the tariffs. Um, I won't go into the details of all this, but you can see how this, uh, you know, uh, how, how, the, how the tariffs, even if, if we seem to have hit a, something of a pause button, that is only a pause button. We are still in a framing of a renationalization of a protectionist uh, trade relationship in which the EU is not a, a partner, doesn't have agency, it is an object, and it is an object to be dismantled, it appears. That, for us, is a problem. Because this administration seems to think of the EU as something like an international treaty or a country club that you can check out of, in the same way that it seems to think Brexit works. Well, actually, I would, for those of you who have ever worked with the EU, the EU, of course, is much closer to the United States of America than many Americans like to admit. It is an actual living, breathing organism with its own set of rules, with practice. And despite the fact that we have different languages, um, it is is not just a legalistic enterprise. And uh, if you want proof of that, rather than my reciting, I am a lawyer by training, but uh, perhaps some of you saw the Twitter storm in reaction to Jeremy Hunt's comparison of the EU with the Soviet Union. Um, it was Eastern European Twitter that lit up and took offense. It didn't need me to do that. <laughs> that brings me to the second part of my argument. Um, moving from economic coercion, or economic warfare, if you will, to cultural warfare. The one thing on which this president has never recanted, has never reversed himself, is in his endorsement of authoritarian leaders and their thinking not just in the Philippines, not just in China, not just in Russia, but in Europe as well. <coughs> Praising the Italian elections, in which, which led Matteo Salvini, whom I would call something that is as close as is possible to being a fascist in Europe, um, into a position of power. Mm-hmm. He is the man running, currently running, Italian politics, although his party is the minority, uh, the, the minority party in this coalition mm-hmm. government with the five-star movement. Then there is Viktor Orban. I don't know how many of you have read Viktor Orban's summer camp speeches, which Mm -hmm. he gives in Romania, not in Hungary. Viktor Orban hasn't just rebuilt the constitutional order of Hungary into an authoritarian order. He is now proposing to apply the same principle to Europe. He and Salvini and the FPO and others, and apparently they are enlisting the support of Stephen Bannon, are proposing to create a movement that will in the May 2019 European elections, that is their stated goal, capture the European institutions, not just the European Parliament, but also the European Commission, and change the European order. This is, you have to recognize this, this is an alternate vision of Europe. It is an illiberal, anti-constitutional, tyranny of the majority, identitarian, and populist here is a euphemism, vision of Europe this isn't just about left and right this is now, this is the deepest divide that we have ever seen in the transatlantic relationship within Europe and it happens to dovetail very nicely with the cultural warfare views of a Mr. Dugin I'm not sure that it dovetails with the convictions, such as they are of Vladimir Putin, I doubt that but I'm sure that he is perfectly happy to employ that kind of movement and to use that kind of division for his own purposes, which I believe to be much more uh, pragmatist, much more opportunist, and much less principled. But what we're seeing here is, is of course, a, a shall we say, a coming confrontation or an existing confrontation within the the defenders of constitutionalism and liberal democracy and its enemies. And it is one that affects Russia. It is one in which Russia is involved to the extent that Russia is opportunistically at at this point exploiting these divisions Hmm. for its own internal purposes. And it seems to me that Russians who don't agree with Mr. Dugin or Russians who don't agree with Mr. Putin have a stake in this. And that you should care about what happens here, because it will have consequences for you. And that is, to me, the conversation that we need to have. Not a conversation, I mean, yes, I care profoundly about the future of Ukraine. I care about the about the agency of the Ukrainian people, of course. But the reality, the real challenge here, is the future of liberal democracy in the West. And for any sane Russian, it seems to me you, are, you want to be a part of this and you don't want this to happen because it will have very damaging consequences for you, regardless of where you
0: think your system is headed. Thank you. All right, before we turn back to the Russians, um, I want to bring back, get another American view. Sure. Um, so Mike, what do you think? The greatest threat to, um, to Europe, is uh, it come from Russia, does it come from the United States, or does it come from within?
6: To Europe. Um, yeah, part of it, I don't think it's from our show from the United States, It's from a real questioning of what the post-post-Cold World order really looks like and what the base of it will be. There were certain assumptions over the last 25 years that were sort of baked in into a normative outlook on the international system the United States together in partnership with Europeans <coughs> were trying to advance. One was in part about the belief of the inevitability and the success of liberalism that had fundamentally no effect of ideological challenges, right? And of course, the other one were certain assumptions about the integration of Russia and the path of Russia would take. That's together with the Europeans. And then on behalf of the United States, the part that China would take as a rising power as well, right? Um, I mean, I think I'd highlight probably well, I think some of the strategic challenges are one, that, in the there's a negotiation taking place. One is a much more smaller one, on sort of Russia attempting to renegotiate the post-cold war security framework for Europe and its role in the international system. But there, there are even bigger things in play. And part of the negotiation is, of course, on sort of the perceived balance of power, or at least the sort of things that Russia argues that it deserves. And, and what has effectively <coughs> succeeded at is, Russia's made a very good case for why it should be perceived as a significant threat, and not a very good case for why anyone should renegotiate either the European security order or the international system that's positioned it with it. Because it's either strong enough to pose a threat, but too weak for the United States or anybody else to have to actually come to terms with it. Part of the reason for that, I think Andrei covered quite well. One. Well, first of all, there's a huge asymmetry just in general in power, but beyond that, there's a very strong confirmation bias by both sides that really believes in the weakness of the other and that the other side will not be able to sustain any sort of competition, right? And both sides tend to look to indicators that validate their own opinion. So I think from US perspective, there's sort of a a view of great power obsolescence, right? That is that Russia will sort of retire out of this competition sometime in 10, 15 years, whatnot, because for all sorts of reasons, it can't sustain it due to resources. Um, some people view it ideologically in terms of Russian politics, other people typically think Russia is gonna run out of money, run out of people, whatnot. I don't think that's necessarily true, but that's the perception. I think on the Russian side, there's a strong confirmation bias that one way or another, these centrifugal forces in Europe will lead the European Union to disband itself for Russia, and Russia will effectively be able to renegotiate security arrangements, and you know, traditional problems of political polarization in the United States will also uh, give it considerable advantages. Um, with that said, I, of course, think this is unrealistic. There is a real transition to a sort of uh, post-unipolar world order, but people, if they sort of think that unipolarity is sort of a one, one-wheel bicycle, they think that maybe if we do a multipolar or bipolar order, to be equally sized wheels, and I think that's completely unrealistic. I think, if anything, the balance of power and the reality of certain United States and American allies means that at best we're going to go to a year old tiny bicycle with one very large wheel, which will still be the United States, American economic and political power international system, and at best some, some much smaller wheels. So multipolarity will be highly, highly uneven at best. Um, you know, the big picture is of course that uh, there's a strong realization that uh, Liberalism and the political tools that it offers clearly does not have all the answers. It certainly has really run into a big challenge from the standpoint of identity politics. And Europeans, I think, have really run into a challenge of actually how to integrate Central and Eastern Europeans and how to deal with uh, uh, nationalism and the fact that um, we was not viewed as an ideological competitor but or as an alternative model. The model of sort of authoritarian modernization is de facto kind of Russia's model. Uh, actually, it was more purchase than people thought. In some ways, this could be described as China's model as well. Um, I think probably one of the biggest challenges of how, of how this conflict is, in essence, quite different from the first period of the Cold War. If I look at the Cold War, it's kind of three, three Cold Wars, a 48-69 to 69 really period of unbridled competition, without the rules, with lots of new technologies. A lot of brinksmanship and attempts of coercion with uh, both weapons, technology and capabilities that neither power is especially experienced with. And then, sort of, the good happy Cold War that people remember is the 79, uh, 89, uh, sorry, 69 79 period of detente, where all these rules came into play, and then the final period of structured competition that took place. Um, one of the big differences is that well, the Cold War was principally uh, uh, framed by the stability and stability paradox. That is, it was displaced in direct competition basically everywhere except for Europe. And it shaped the world politics, right? It was shaped by political warfare, proxy wars, covert actions that was fought in Africa and Middle East and Latin America and Southeast Asia. And one place that actually wasn't fought, of course, was Europe. And in the Cold War, both sides actually were not effectively able, through direct competition, to impose huge costs on each other, to shape each other's politics. So they had to go and fight it everywhere else they could, right? Because real conventional nuclear war was inconceivable, although both sides planned on it and dumped all the money they could into it. They essentially shaped global politics by doing this. Today I think both strategies fundamentally do have a strategy of cost and position, right? Our advantages are politically economic, Russia has other advantages as we can see information, cyber warfare, whatnot. But both sides are able to impose costs and shape each other I think today from direct competition, that they necessarily couldn't back then. And by shape, I mean very importantly that politics is perception. The actual actions and, and, and sort of the objective measured outcomes are not as important as how the polities the of the two different countries perceive them, right? And so they're dramatically magnified, and so both sides are able to attack and, and engage with each other at things that they value in a way that they really couldn't in direct competition during the Cold War, you know? Uh, finally, I mean, in terms of how long this competition will be mm-hmm. sustained, I personally think that one of the biggest challenges here in Washington, D.C. is there's a strong perception that this can't go on. And I strongly suspect that not only can it go on, but then it will. OK.
0: So, uh, <laughs> Andre, I'm going to turn back to you. I'm going to ask you, uh, we, I feel like we, we have a lot of concepts on the table, historical evolutions, um, domestic politics. I, wa- I want to kind of go to first principles. What do you think threatens European security? And what do you think threatens Russian security? <clears throat>
2: It's a big question, but I think that uh, in both cases we have two overlapping agendas. The old agenda which we inherited from the 20th century and uh, we couldn't manage this agenda like traditional arms control in Europe Um, like confidence building like um, you know, threat of uh, inadvertent escalation. So these are the issues which essentially belong to to the past. And we are still locked in this agenda, at least uh, on the Russian side, more than on the European side. I think Russia tends to be more conservative in assessing threats and challenges to its security. Um, But on the other hand, uh, we have a new agenda, the emerging agenda of the 21st century, which includes Issues like migrations, like international terrorism of the scale that we have not seen before, though we had terrorism, of course, well, it's earlier. Well,
0: actually, international terrorism in Europe is at a, at a lower scale
2: than. Well, but the 70s the, I think 80s. that the perception is, is different. It's different type of uh, terrorism, it's an important terrorism. Uh, but also, you know, climate change, also, you know, a lot of uh, trans border problems uh, uh, related to the transparency and the porous borders that we have. And I think that uh, the drama is that we have to deal with the two agendas at the same time. And uh, if you look uh, uh, at the situation from the Russian vantage point, I think that there is an emphasis uh, on the traditional agenda because, you know, for people it is for people who run the country, it is more comfortable mm-hmm. to feel that we are back to mid 20th century. And besides, uh, this is something that can uh, allow to capitalize what they perceive as Russia's comparative advantages. If you take uh, Europe, I think that um, for a long period of time, the European Union thought that, you know, it left the old agenda behind and it could focus on the new agenda. But uh, unfortunately, probably because uh, the European Union relied so heavily on the United States, it turned out to be not very prepared neither for the return of the old agenda nor for the emerging new agenda. And I think this is the drama of the European Union. And of course, uh, if we look at the transatlantic relationship, there is a profound asymmetry in security, there is a profound asymmetry in the economic field. And I don't think that this asymmetry will change anytime soon.
0: Bill, is Constanza right? Should Russia be doing all it can to defend the liberal democratic order? I well, don't say exactly uh, that. but is, is it in Ru- the interest <clears throat> of I, I the Russians? It, it, it has a stake in what happens in Europe. Okay, is it in the interest of Russians that the liberal democratic order survives? I, I
1: I think I would agree with that assessment. I mean, I I think listening, there there are several points to make here. First, I mean, analogies are dangerous, and and. Two of my professors at Harvard, Ernie May and Richard Neustadt, in Thinking in Time, talk about if you use analogies, the more important thing is to think not how what's similar today to the analogy you're using, but what's different. When I look at Russia right right now, I mean, I lived in the Soviet Union. I can say I knew many Russians, and it was easy to maintain the position and the thought that at some point the Russians would abandon being Soviets. What's different in the 21st century is it's hard to imagine Russians abandoning being Russians. Uh, and therefore, you, you, one simply can't deal with the state and the government there in the same way. And you have to deal with what it is. Rather, and that's hard to determine and hard to, to work out. I tend to agree, both you know, listening to Constance and Mike, both... Uh, there are things that we need to get right with Russia uh, overriding importance is simply maintaining a control over nuclear arms not only our own but those around the globe and nuclear materials um, it's been so long since anybody has set off nuclear bombs in populated centers uh, we were the last to do it that um, you know that people m- many people have forgotten there are things that are overriding like I guess I think climate change is another thing the, that recent um, news story that that, is it uh, transportation or, or uh, EPA thinking that we're going to have a seven degree Fahrenheit rise by the end of the century and what that will do to the whole globe in terms of how you have to adjust. I, I'm much more mindful, I, I agree that the, the, the dangers we face, the real threats that we face are internal and the challenges to our norms and values, how we govern ourselves internally. I see that in the United States with this administration. The jury's still out. But I I go back to, um, yeah, I'd take that part of George Kennan's advice from the X article that says if we live up to our own values, we eventually will prevail in whatever competition that we have abroad. I I think the European Union, I'm one of the fans of the European Union. I've dealt with it. Uh, Many of my American colleagues that I talk to, they don't understand. It has strengths and weaknesses like any institution, but it's fundamentally different from from the U.S. and how it works. And if you come from the U.S. federal system and expect Brussels to work the same way, uh, you're going to be lost. Uh, And you know, in any case, but people, I, I, you know, um, I've watched living and working in Europe over 45 years uh, to see such changes all to the good along with the fact that the curvature of bananas or cucumbers and other stuff and and more serious bureaucratic intrusion. But um, it strikes me that many Europeans I've seen that even such as Hungarians and Italians, take the good for granted and think that they can play with the political system and not recognizing that some of the material benefits and social benefits that have come from this have come from the development and implementation, self-implementation of norms over, this, uh, over the past four decades. Um, the, the other thing that we face, and I think we all face this in one degree or another, we confuse it with Russian... Russian messing with the election of two thousand and sixteen computer you know, you know uh, fiddling you know computer hacking and any other stuff the whole world is going through a technological revolution where social media the interconnectedness has made us all vulnerable to asymmetric actors um, and uh, you, you find this um, Islamists disenchanted with the West make the same use of the internet as do Chinese Tibetans Iranians Russians and some you know a number of Westerners and we haven't yet figured out how to handle it yet how to respond how to tell what information is true how to mobilize societies uh, behind what we believe to be true and proper information rather than uh, disinformation, fake news, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I think that's as much of a challenge to us and to our governance uh, before we get uh, to the threats coming from outside. Um, that, I, I mean, I could go on and on, but I'll stop there. But that, that lays out some of the things I see that don't have a lot to do with the traditional 18th, 19th or 20th century Russia-Western rivalry, but affect us all equally. And uh, require building some sort of relationship so that we can deal with them.
0: Okay. I, I'd
4: like to make two two points which it seems to me are key for understanding how this is how this period is different from the Cold War. And one is mobility, and the other one is the ubiquity of information. How does this apply to Russia? Mm-hmm. And you may have heard me say this before, in which case I apologize, but the point's worth reinforcing. There no longer is an iron. There no longer is a wall. Russians who don't like Russia the way it is now can move, and they do. My own home city of Berlin is host to a really significant number of Russians who have moved, and from what I've seen, they represent a really important and damaging brain drain to a healthy and, uh, and, and prosperous Russia. These are the intelligent, educated middle class who want a better future for their children. And of course, they moved not only to Berlin, but they also moved to London and to America and elsewhere. Um, the other thing is you can't hide stuff anymore. you If there were a gulag, you couldn't hide it. You can't hide what the Chinese are doing to the Uyghurs. The result of that, of course, is not that the Russians mm-hmm. or the Chinese will no longer do this, or that, for that matter, that the Americans would separate parents from tiny children as old as six months and put them into, into jails or camps. But that, in an Orwellian turn of events, what then happens is that they, what, we, what we do instead, instead of hiding things, we redefine them. We brazenly, outrageously define what is wrong as something that is essentially right. That's what's so Orwellian about this dispensation.
0: Is that really new?
1: No,
4: but it's, but it's different, I think it's different from, from, from the Cold War, because you suddenly have people staring at the facts and saying, but wait a moment, small children are being put into camps, but wait a moment, the Chinese are trying to do unspeakable things to the Uyghurs, and other people saying, these things are not the things you think they are, these things are good things, and we should all be in favor of them. It now, we've seen, yeah, that, obviously, we've seen that in Stalinism, um, yes, I accept that. But the, but the spooky thing is it is that it happens in the middle of our Western society, which we thought were past that. We thought that was a lesson we had learned. Yeah. Clearly we have not, or it is one that we need to relearn.
0: Well, Abu Ghraib should have chipped us off. Yeah. If, if
2: I might just yeah. add one, one, one sentence to what has been just said, I think that uh, the phenomenon of big data Create entirely new opportunities, set of opportunities for centralized and authoritarian regimes, in terms of social and political control, something that we have never seen before sure. in the history of the humankind. And uh, that makes social and political change much more difficult. You look at China, and look at the, you know, how they use social profiling and uh, how they use you know, these scores and points uh, to discipline the population. And uh, I'm not sure that uh, the liberal uh, idea the liberal you know political system has uh, found a, a convincing argument to counter that not yet Ivan,
0: okay. does uh, the liberal system even
3: all exist or well well, mm-hmm? well no, more mm-hmm. social control may be used <laughs> by democracies too why not
2: well no, then they will not be democracies well they will be democracies <laughs> <and> <laughs> it just might a, not be liberal or will not be liberal
3: this is a challenge but uh, well okay. this is a this is a temptation a huge temptation
0: we'll see it happening yeah. so none mm-hmm. of this is about military threats right we're not talking about war here mike should we be talking about wars? wait. wait,
4: wait no? we're not saying that isn't happening all okay. we're saying is that
0: the context has changed
4: and that we, I mean, all of us can do these policy debates about the, I don't mm-hmm. know, the future of INF, you know, arms control, whatever, okay. until we're blue in the face. But, but we I, I think, think what's important to recognize is that we have a significantly changed mm-hmm. narrative and strategic framing here that, that has a consequence for how we handle this.
6: Mm. Yeah, there are certain things that I think are fundamentally enduring, right? There's like the change in character and politics and so some, But some things endure. Um, well, You're right. No, we're not talking about war, but like but military power for all this actually remains a trump card in the international system. You asked me earlier, sort of, mm-hmm. what do you think are the great threats to European security? Well, you know, old apocryphal story, when Gandhi was asked what he thought about Western civilization, he said he thought it would be a good idea. And I think European <laughs> security <laughs> would be a good I idea. Okay. Europeans starting to think that, too. I mean, that's the reality of it is that... Um, a lot of the current international order, as it is today, the post-Cold War one, was expanded only being underwritten by the United States, in the hope and the assumption that when the other powers came along, they'd see all the benefits, they'd join a framework of cooperative security, they would not want to engage in real politique and pursue the things that typical countries, particularly authoritarian countries, want to do. And that turned out to be untrue. So even though we really like to talk about uh, the political side of things and liberalism and, and some of the fundamental dilemmas, which I also raised, yeah, actually, military power and the security dimensions really come back in a big way, right? And you can feel that both in US national security strategy and national defense strategy. But the big question is what to do with it, because, look, I guess whether, whether Russia subscribed to liberal international order. Uh, if you mean liberal from the standpoint of the economic order, yes. From the political one, no. And neither does China. Neither of them agree to this because no one asked them, right? Now they're being asked, and it turns out, like, no, they don't agree. They never subscribe to it. And why would authoritarians subscribe to the promotion of expansion of democracy and liberalism? That doesn't sound like something they would exactly sign up to. But if we look about, do they agree of keeping the sort of overall framework of relations between countries? Um, here I'm skeptical. I think the United States is probably the only country that's really defending the international order, for whom the international order as is is really a good, right? And the shortest way for the international order to end, other than the war between major powers. Because most orders that we've had historically, they're created as a result of Great Power Wars. And the reason why it's hard to create one is because pure nuclear powers ideally don't go to war. So it's very hard for everybody to fight it out today, and it has been ever since nineteen fifties. But they also very easy to destroy an in international order through competition. Right? If the primary concern for the United States, Russia and China becomes a security dimension, and becomes an expanded competitive space, then who cares about the values, the ideas, and the norms? Eventually, they'll simply destroy it the way other orders died in Europe in the 1800s.
0: Okay, I'm going to open this up to our lovely and brilliant audience. Um, let's start in the front.
1: With this administration, we're too hardest. Sure <laughs>
0: And please uh, identify yourself and uh, sure. ask a question. Angela Stent
4: from Georgetown University, thank you very much for a very interesting panel. So I'm actually going to go back to history since mm-hmm. uh, Bill started off by presenting his book. You told us what happened and how it emerged that Russia didn't have a place. Do you in your book talk about what might have been done differently in the 1990s so that maybe
1: Russia would have
0: had a place?
1: Um, yes, by implication. Uh, I mean, I, it, it's hard to get 400 pages into five minutes of commentary. Uh, but indeed, there, no, there are a number of key decisions there, and, and you know, uh, the the problem with this, let me put it this way, is, is you can't find one single decision that produced an unacceptable system of institutions and practices and relationships uh, for Moscow. Instead, you have a number of things that made sense at the time. Uh, Preserving NATO after the Gulf War. I mean, I, I was actually in the NATO office at that time. And it served admirably as a way of managing a coalition of the willing. Um, and then NATO served as the logical existing instrument in the early 1990s to address the wars within Europe that the European Union, uh, the UN, and the OSCE all proved incapable uh, of developing and and providing military power. Uh, And so it's the kind of... I would liken it to a situation of the frog, the classic frog boiling in the the water coming to a boil. You never notice uh, until you get to a situation in 2013 when everybody else in Europe belongs to the EU, everybody else in Europe belongs to NATO, uh, and Putin is warning Prodi. You know, know, we understand you have the right to do this in Ukraine, but if you do it, we're going to have to do something. Uh, And how do you... uh, this is to me, the paradox is is, is all along the way both addressing short term problems and arguing how the system we had developed on on all sides i mean this is not to you know simply you know to to exonerate one side or another, but simply the the system that that grew up had such attractiveness to us it it became Uh, especially for senior leaders, hard to understand. Well, why don't they like it? Because it it keeps it, and and you finally get to things like my friend Dan Fried saying, well, the Russians ought to welcome this because it's put stability on their border for the first time. Well, the problem is it's not a kind of stability that they bought into, Um, and and where did it go down? I mean, I, you know, one thing, I'll just say one thing, but there are many things. The Medvedev security uh, treaty proposal, I mean, I can see why we were, I thought it was, when the treaty was finally presented, it was terrible, it was an awful document. But the idea of something uh, that, that would you know, establish a recognized order or place, of whether procedures uh, or whatever you wanted to call it, was something that, that, if addressed in 2008, might have been easier to do than it that certainly will be now. Uh, both Condy Rice and Hillary Clinton, at different quotes I've found, say, "Well, we like the current order. Fine, it suits us." And uh, I, yeah, this is Russia. You know, a, a, a number of things, places where they might have taken issues. One thing, I'll just put one thing here. I had a Russian. Uh, Journalist, publicist asked me a couple of years ago. I said, "I don't know. Why don't we actually help countries like Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Moldova solve their separatist, separatist problems rather than just supporting the separatists?" And no I've talked to the Russians. I've talked to the Russians about why they do this, and the, the mind well, but you know there, it's there are some
0: yeah. reasons. Yeah, yeah I mean,
1: you no, know, well, but they could, they could have. I mean, I've lived there, and you know, they could, they could have done that. Uh, had they determined to at various points along the way, or they could have attempted to, uh, but did not are these I lost opportunities? It's it's the problem with alternative history that you you can assert anything. The problem with the no, nobody it can didn't nobody happen. can. Uh, I think
4: that we have to. Nobody can that prove you wrong. They didn't was deliberate and part of a policy.
1: Well, course. I know I know it was. I, I know Andronik Nigranian, um, you know, and, and company, and I talked yeah. with them in the 90s as well as you know <laughs> yeah. on. I mean, they made a choice as we made choices, but the, the point is these choices. You, they, you look at them short-term and they're good for you, and then yeah, in, the and in the long-term, you end up in a place where you say, how did we get here? Because our intentions were good. Also, the Russians have an unfortunate
4: okay. tendency to chop off really undesirable pieces of real estate and pay a very high political price for that. I mean, you know, South Ossetia,
2: Well, you know, I think that to be, you know, to be fair. I cannot really. (laughs) You cannot get away with (laughs)
5: that.
2: (laughs) You take the case of Moldova, and I think that the European Union has to take at least equal responsibility for the failure uh, to set the Moldovan question. The Cossack plan, you know, it could have been negotiated. I'm the
1: one that's guilty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs)
2: And uh, of course, Nagorno-Karabakh, again, you know, I think it would be a stretch to say that Russia tried to somehow maintain the tension in Nagorno-Karabakh. On the contrary, uh, the the, the nightmare for Putin was when two years ago, it started to, to boil. Russia and
0: sells weapons to both sides, or so, well, to both sides?
2: Well, you know, I can give you many examples of United States oh, arms yeah, sales no, 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 to no, very I, companies. So, but you know, no, I think that indeed, indeed <laughs> yeah. in certain cases, if you take Georgia, for example, Russia has to take a, a part of responsibility. But what I want to say is that uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union has been a very complex and protective yeah. process. No. And I think that uh, probably, you know, everybody, no, didn't perform perfectly. Uh, I don't want to, to, to put Russia and uh, Europe on equal footing because the European Union didn't have the capacity of the Russian Federation. But let me, if I might, just one, one more point. You know, When we're talking about uh, Russia and its failure to get into Europe, I have an example which I think questions the traditional liberal narrative about that. Because uh, you mentioned Russia failed to get into European institutions, not marginalized. And it uh, has not become a stakeholder in European security. And that's why it turned back to, to Asia. And second, you know, Russia failed to reform its economy and it got ba- back to this uh, statist, more or less, you know, Soviet type mm-hmm. economy. And that's why, you know, it couldn't integrate into Europe. And that's why it turned to Asia. But from this, you know, this narrative does not explain, for example, the rise of Euroscepticism and nationalism no. in Poland. Poland was successful where Russia clearly failed. Poland was integrated into both NATO and the European Union very successfully. Right? Uh, Poland, uh, after you know, a couple of years of very painful Balcerovich reforms, became you know, extremely successful in terms of its economic development. So if you follow the traditional narrative and apply it to Poland, you would say no no no. Poland would never, mm-hmm. ever question European values or you know the centrality of the European project. However, what we see right now in Warsaw, you know, gives reasons to question this logic. There should be something deeper there, which in certain ways, not in all the ways, but in some ways unites Russians and Poles.
4: Yeah, and that brings me back to this identity of right. the culture yeah, war narrative. And I Thank mean, the, the only thing I would add to you, I, I agree that, that the Polish case is actually the most interesting and instructive one here, is that the uh, previous uh, Polish government had huge influence in Berlin. Mm-hmm. It had tremendous mm-hmm. influence in the way that Berlin mm-hmm. started reframing its foreign and security policy. And uh, one of the tragedies of the current dispensation is that for generations of Germany, including mine and me personally, This seems to be upending the decades long patient work of Mm. Polish German reconciliation, which is, I mean, as close to our hearts, if not closer, as the question of German French reconciliation or indeed German Russian reconciliation. I mean, we committed war crimes everywhere. And for this to be upended in this way, Mm -hmm. and for the sort of distrust and suspicion that we see there now, I was in fact just talking about this with a Polish visitor, is is just um, mind boggling. Yeah. And, it, and it speaks to the fact that there is a sort of deeper issue mm-hmm. about social change and about coping with modernity that all of us are grappling mm-hmm. with, and where the terrible simplificateurs, the terrible simplifiers, who mm-hmm. promise easy solutions mm-hmm. as a way of escaping the, the, the terrifying mm-hmm. complexity of modernity are getting the upper hand and it seems to me that what we all of us in this room here, regardless of our political, party political affiliations or or where we come from or passports, should should worry about is that everywhere in the United States, in Europe and, and in Russia, the people who have these easy solutions, who have these identitarian ideas, who are willing to dismantle the achievements of liberal democracy, the protection of minorities, the protection of political pluralism—everything yeah, that the Federalist mm-hmm. Ten talks about—are yeah, mm-hmm. um, are, are gaining the upper hand, and in some ways are each other's best allies. Yeah, in, right. and, and that the centrist forces are, are on the defensive, are insecure, are speechless, are, are you know dumbstruck with fear at suddenly having to defend something that they always took for granted.
2: But what would be your prediction? Things will get worse before they get yes, any better. I do predict mm. that
4: because I think that we are all, I see us all struggling mm. with this. On the other hand, I have to tell you, um, I mean, again, it comes for me personally because I am a German, because my parents were war children, because my most important teachers and mentors were emigre Jews from Europe. I, in some ways, feel. Yeah, that that a lot of what is happening here are things that somehow uh, I actually you know have some fairly fairly potent triggers for, and I also have mm. I I I think I know what's happening here, and and I will be damned if I let it happen.
5: Mm. I
4: am just not quite sure how I, <laughs> I do just it stop me <laughs> exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, however, I mean I, I think mm-hmm. I think that what's key here is understanding what is happening and understanding the magnitude of the challenge. Mm -hmm. And in this, all of us who want to prevent these terrible people are each other's best allies. And in all of this, I think it behooves us to seek in our own lives, in our work, and maybe in the ways in which we contribute to national and international debate, is to work harder at finding a constructive middle ground where all of us make concessions, where all of us uh, develop greater empathy for each other, and try to find solutions for problems which right now seem intractable. And, I say, and I, I say this also because it seems to me that in front of this framing, a lot of the stuff that seems to us now to be insolvable actually becomes of a second order, actually becomes amenable to political solution if we try hard enough, because what we are threatened with is, with is so much larger. I'm sorry to become so... Yeah,
2: the, let's take,
4: let's thing, take yeah. another,
0: um, right behind you, Cyrus. I'm to have to yep. for, I'm gonna, uh,
5: good afternoon, everybody. My name is Haikas, a uh, visiting fellow uh, from our, uh, in Armenian National Committee. I have one question and one comment. The uh, question is about is there any possibility of exchange of power and influence uh, between uh, Russia and China? I mean China supports Russia in uh, Europe since it's, uh, since it is uh, the top trade partner of European Union and recently using nanotechnology and Russia support China in East China Sea uh, if there is escalation and how can it uh, challenge the uh, globally defined American power this is question and uh, comment i think uh, that Russians uh, interference in uh, Europe is exaggerated uh, w- just one example Russia is a bigger influence on uh, Armenia but recently we see a revolution in a democratic revolution in armenia okay i think er- we're going to stick with the questions yeah. rather than
0: the commentary <laughs> okay. that's alright just because we don't have that much time so china uh,
3: russia yeah, uh, i i can say a couple of mm-hmm. words about china and russia and uh, well i wouldn't overestimate uh, the prospects of alliance between the two countries though uh, current us policy is a, a good very good independent variable to move in this direction, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, things are much more complicated in the field. Uh, we have a huge asymmetry of our relations, uh, quite good political relations, good, uh, ex- excellent personal relations between leaders, but if you look at the substance of economic relations, they are, uh, they are much different. Uh, so uh, good words are being said on different economic projects, and some of them are really on the march. Uh, investments are higher than we see on the official statistics Uh, but still uh, the symmetry uh, in economic relations between Russia and China is there so Russia is is a weaker partner, we don't have an equal uh, economic relation and I I will give you uh, quite an illustrative example uh, of our relations which uh, is uh, Um, connected with sanctions Uh, we may assume that China is a black knight black knight is, is a partner who allows a target state to avoid sanctions of the initiator state so theoretically China must help Russia in terms of investments, in terms of supply of Goods under embargo, uh, in terms of different other things. But if you look at the substance, we will see that, for instance, Chinese banks prefer not to work with Russian com- Russian companies. Some Chinese banks private 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 banks, yeah, private banks prefer not to work with uh, Russia, being afraid of losing U.S. market. Uh, uh, state banks are. Uh, well, they, they take different positions, but they don't finance, for instance, middle business projects usually. so if, if they do something they do it on a when it is approved in a high level. and there are a few projects like this. Uh, so and uh, you know the central government uh, does not call to these banks saying, you must work with Russia. So again, there is a uh, sort of an illusion to think that China is so autocratic that all the decisions are, you know taken in the in Beijing yes yeah the country is much more complicated so so I wouldn't Mm -hmm. overestimate uh, you know the flourishness the flourishing character of the nation
0: all right I think we can get one maybe two more questions in let's go to the way back
5: business baltia media group from Riga Latvia uh, how did the expansion of NATO all the way towards uh, the Russia's border with Latvia, Estonia, and, and uh, Lithuania change the balance of powers, and uh, did it make se- uh, Europe more secure? Did it make Baltic states more secure? Uh, I'd like to hear Russian point of view and American-European point of view. Thank you.
0: Okay, let's see if we can do those quickly. Uh, <laughs> Bill, I think you're, you're, since you wrote the book, I
1: think you're at the... Um, well, the jury is out as yet as to whether it made Europe more secure. Um, It it provided a sense of security to Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Uh, but uh, as relations between Moscow and uh, the Ever side of Brussels and Washington grew more severe, there were then raised concerns about whether they were less concerned because very little attention was paid to how one would actually defend uh, these countries militarily. Um, NATO is still dealing with that question. Uh, The countries joined NATO when NATO was very much involved in expeditionary activities in Afghanistan and very little with territorial defense. And now we are back to figuring out territorial defense while still attempting to operate out of area? A short answer to a complicated question. It basically depends on who you are, whether you sit in Washington, France, or Riga.
0: And if you sit in Moscow?
2: Well, you know, let me give an analogy. And again, it's a little bit far-fetched, but still I, don't, I cannot resist temptation. I have many friends in Riga. Uh, including people in the foreign ministry of uh, of Latvia and in the defense sector. And I have many friends uh, in Helsinki. And uh, when I compare the two countries, which country feels more secure in Europe? The answer is evident. It is Finland, which is not a NATO member. Of course, you know, we should take into account different uh, tracks of history and different perceptions, and uh, you know the the Russian minority in, in Latvia, which is much bigger than that in Finland. But nevertheless, I think that uh, the the uh, enlargement the of NATO is not a solution, not because of the enlargement itself. The core of the problem, in my opinion, is not that NATO enlarged, and reached Russian borders. The core of the problem that Russia was due to a variety of reasons marginalized in the European security system. If we had some kind of a you know, second floor or something that would allow Russia to be a part of the system, probably the enlargement of NATO will not be that sensitive for our politicians in Moscow.
0: A view yeah. from Berlin? Um,
4: okay. Um, I'm not sure that this is just a view from Berlin. To me, it seems... A view from Berlin. It, no, or just not, mm-hmm. not just Berlin, yeah. was my point. Um, if we take the view, that power, hard power, and geography is the only thing that matters, then it's not just the Baltics that are indefensible, it's all of Europe is indefensible. Just look at our damn borders. So why do we exist? Why are we even still there? Because we are the community that overcame the memory of two world wars, and deep, deep historical enmities, through negotiating shared values, through developing a common system of rules, developing a shared trade space, shared ideas of politics and of constitutionalism, and a shared notion of what it is to have a decent society and how important that is. In other words, our alliance is not just a military one, it is a political one, and it is a value system. That's what makes us strong. And I would remind you that my country's armed forces have the Luftwaffe in Estonia and the army in Lithuania, which is, if you told me that five years ago, I would have said that's a really unlikely thing to happen sadly. So I think that as indefensible you know, in, military, in, in narrowly minded military terms the Baltics are, in political terms, the security of the Baltics is the fattest red line in the book, and I think that Mr. Putin knows that, which is why I'm less worried about territorial aggression on that particular border than I am about the daily probing of our vulnerabilities in other places.
0: Okay, we'll take one last question right here, and then we'll
5: be done. I'm a Peter Humphrey, uh, intel analyst and a former diplomat. I'm a little surprised at the
1: lack of outrage for what is a world-class atrocity, and that's the bombing of Syrian hospitals. And uh, the silence from Europe is pretty deafening on this. It would seem under normal circumstances to be a cause for absolutely shunning Russia everywhere at all times. And then can you shed some light on the Russian citizens' feelings about this atrocity? Does the Russian man on the street care, and, and why not?
0: I mean, I think there's plenty of outrage, it's just, there's a limited amount of what you can do about that outrage. I I don't know that people aren't outraged. It's, Russia's shunned for all sorts of things. I mean, you know, you can add it to the list. I would also say that.
6: Shunning list is very long.
0: I would also say that the United States has this notion some which is embedded in international law. What, what's a valid target? What isn't a valid target? How do you fight war? How you don't fight war? What's appropriate? What's not? And sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes you can do that with the weapons you have at hand and sometimes you can't. And sometimes countries do decide that populations are... Attacking populations is a way to win a conflict. Um, and you can say that's immoral. You can say that I war as that. a whole is immoral. You get into a strange morass there, but it's... Uh, There's a lot of pots calling kettles black when you get to the national level of saying, you know, your atrocities are worse than my atrocities. Let me just
4: add that there is a real debate in Germany about participating in eventual Syrian airstrikes. If you listen to German security podcasts, which unfortunately are in German, um, in fact, I was listening to one this morning that had an extended debate about just this, where participants disagreed with each other, violently. Yeah, it's not. I mean, we are not shutting up about this. Turning it into actual politics, particularly in the sort of toxic atmosphere that the transatlantic relationship and the, tra- the U.S.-German relationship has become, unfortunately, is a little more difficult.
0: It's really Trump ain't helping us here. It's really hard to bomb places without killing people.
4: Also, as we know, Milosevic and Assad and people like that like to put air defense batteries
0: on top of hospitals and schools. Okay, we are out of time. Um, That's not the best way to end this, I'm afraid. Um, I feel that it's a a, a complicated uh, question, but unfortunately we're out of time. Please join me in thanking this excellent panel.